I've been talking for a year that as we walk side by side on the during the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. But today is exciting. Today it's a new season in this teaching, or maybe you could say it's a different chapter in Jesus's life. Today, as we start our study, we are starting the study of Jesus's last seven days. Seven days as he enters Jerusalem, at before his death and before his resurrection. So you can imagine these seven days, these next teachings that we're going to be going through are extremely important to us to learn and to apply to our lives. Now as you look at all the Gospels, the four Gospels, you can see that all these Gospels are all telling the story of Jesus, right? And we know Jesus maybe was approximately 33 years old when he died. So these four Gospels, each one of them would tell the story of Jesus' life of 33 years. Now we know most of the focus is on the three years of Jesus' ministry. But, interesting, now we're to the last seven days. So as we look at that, I want you to think of this. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew spends 33% of that book on the last seven days of Jesus' life. Mark's Gospel spends 40% of the book on Jesus' last seven days. Dr. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, spends 25% of his Gospel on Jesus' last seven days. Now John spends 50% of his writings on Jesus' last seven days. So you can see that all these authors and all these writings which we know are the inspired Word of God have a focus on Jesus' last week. So obviously there's some real important things here. I mean, we're going to get into his death, the resurrection, but there's a whole bunch of teachings inside of there that God wants us to study and know. So I'm excited. This is a new journey, a different beginning, a different season or chapter that we'll be getting into in the teaching. It's going to be, you know, it's different now. So I want to look at a quick timeline as we get going. Because I think this is important. Because we're talking, I think... I know it may sound crazy, but I think we're going to probably be, it might be a year that we'll be in this one week. If you look at all the stories, I mean, half of the book of John. But look at the timeline. So Saturday, this is the eighth day before, this is the sermon we had last week. Everybody remember? The dinner. Jesus stopped off in Bethany and had the dinner with Mary, with Martha, Lazarus. Remember, we gave that sermon. So that was Saturday. Now today... Is Sunday. This is where we're going to be at today. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to discuss today. Monday, we see when he cleansed the temple, which we will get into starting next week. Tuesday, you'll see different controversies with the Jewish leaders. Wednesday, maybe a day of rest. We're not really sure what Jesus did on that Wednesday. Thursday, we see the preparation for Passover. Friday, we see Jesus' trial and crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. Then Sunday, we see the resurrection of Jesus raised from the dead. So this week, we will be looking at now. So I'm excited. Now, last week we were at the dinner party, right? We learned about worship last week, remember? We saw Mary break open that alabaster jar, anoint Jesus' feet and his head, wipes with her hair. It was, I mean, it was... 
a little outlandish, a little crazy, that kind of worship. I mean, it was amazing what she did there. But I asked questions. Anybody remember the questions from last week after we read and studied that story? I asked, how do each one of us worship Jesus? How does Jesus want each one of us to worship Him? I asked these questions last week after we studied that. And I asked you all this week to examine your worship, to examine your hearts, and pray to the Lord. Pray to Jesus, how should I be worshiping you? How would you like me to worship you? We asked if we would, I asked the question, do you worship like Mary? Maybe some of you worship more like Martha. Or maybe some of you worship like Lazarus. Always share your testimony. The question was, though, that each one of us should examine ourselves and examine our own personal worship to Jesus. And ask the Lord, is my worship what you would ask of me? Now this week, we're going to learn a little more about worship. And as we get into this, the question, many questions I'll ask. The one question is, what are you willing to lay down for Jesus? This, today we'll look at Jesus' triumphant entry. Now, this story is in all four of the Gospels, which is not very common, actually. Very rare to see a story in all four Gospels. So this obviously should tell us something, knowing this scripture is inspired by the God, this must be really important. That's the way I view it and take it, that each author of a Gospel would include this particular story in the Gospels. I can't remember the percentage but it's four different accounts of this story. So today, I'm going to preach a little bit different. Normally, I go right verse by verse, right through the scripture, right? Today, I'm going to use all four Gospels to go through this story. So it's a little bit different. You're going to have to jump around in your Bible a little bit. But we're going to go through this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But we're going to use all four Gospels to do it. So this way, we can get four different views, four different accounts... To better and best understand the lessons that are inside of this. So the title of this message is, How Do We Celebrate Jesus? You see the scriptures on here. Lots of different scriptures. So open your, you can mark it. We're going to be in all four Gospels and some other places today. But we're going to start in Luke, chapter 19, 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Now, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, this was a huge deal. This was a big deal. I mean, these, everyone that was there that had heard about Jesus, they would be so excited. Remember, because they were really hoping that Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for. They were hopeful this was a serious change in their lives and in their Jewish community. I think they really thought Jesus, he was gonna, this, something big was going to happen. They were expecting at the Passover, maybe Jesus would take his place as their king. They were expecting and hoping that he would not only take their place as their king, but he also would lead a full result revolt against the Romans, freeing the Jewish people as they were currently enslaved to the Romans. 
Could you imagine being there? I mean, thousands and thousands of people, and the people looking forward to this and hopeful for this. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the emotion? I mean, the emotion, it would have been thick in the air. You can imagine as Jesus was nearing, people were hearing Jesus is coming. They're all anticipating, hoping fully for what he would do. I just, I, it would be amazing the excitement and the emotion that would have been there and that would have been present. In the Passover, it would have drawn huge crowds, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, I mean, everybody from all over would have been traveling to attend the Passover festival. Now, today, maybe some of you don't realize it, but this is actually today, the sermon that we're talking about is Palm Sunday. So just to give you kind of a context on that. And as we get going, I just, I really, I've asked before, but I want you to really try to just put yourself in that story. To feel the emotions, to look around you, to see all the people. Thousands of people heading to Jerusalem for the celebration. But as you see this, and you see all these thousands of people, would have all these people been alone? They wouldn't have been alone. What was required from the Jewish people when they attended Passover? Let's turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. Goes on. If a family is too small to eat the whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of the family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Now, so you can imagine. Imagine all the lambs, all the goats, along with the people entering the city. Now, it's true some of them could have purchased when they got there. But I'm sure a lot of them also brought their own animals for sacrifice. If you look back into Jewish law, if you were to buy one... That animal was supposed to be with you three days before you sacrificed it. So you imagine all these families traveling, all these animals. Can you see this? Families, big families, animals, everyone traveling, thousands and thousands of people, thousands and thousands of animals heading for the Passover. I don't know exact numbers, I've looked at a lot, and we're talking hundreds, possibly hundreds of thousands of people. And then you think about all the animals as it would also take. So... As I've asked you to imagine this, I'd like you to take a minute and just think about this context of this through Jesus' eyes. Jesus is getting ready right now to enter Jerusalem for the last time. Imagine. Imagine seeing through Jesus' eyes. Imagine seeing all the families and all the people heading to Passover. But along with them is all these animals, all these lambs, all these goats. They're all heading to Jerusalem to be these animal, with their animals, these animals to be sacrificed. Jesus knew his purpose. Just as these animals. Imagine that. Standing there watching people go by with their animals, heading to the temple. Turn back to Luke chapter 19. Look at that verse. Do you see in there, how did Jesus face this as he was facing heading into Jerusalem? What do you see? It says, he walked ahead of the disciples. I think this is kind of important. I think that him walking ahead of the apostles, knowing his fate, knowing what he would face, he walked ahead. He was the one leading. 
He was going before his disciples to Jerusalem. I just I read that and I just felt that to me that showed who Jesus was in my life. Um, you know, I'm following him. It shows me that he had courage. I think it shows his Jesus obviously had some determination to go face what he was going to face in Jerusalem. I think that he knew that he was going there to be placed on the cross. He knew that he was taking our place on that cross. Yet it was him forged the way. Let's continue. Now we're going to turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verse 2. As I said, we're going to be jumping around through all the Gospels. So verse 2. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If I was a disciple, if you were in this story, would this seem a little strange to you? As Jesus would ask this of you, I would have a lot of questions going around in my mind. I would be like, why does he need a donkey? Why do I have to go get the donkey? We've been walking around for three years without a donkey. Why now am I required to go get this donkey? But the text doesn't say that the disciples said anything. It just says they went and got the donkey. But I know if I was in that story, I'd be asking a lot of questions. Like, what's going to happen when I get this donkey? I mean, there'd be a lot of questions in my mind. But there's a second part of the conversation. Turn to Mark chapter 11, verses 3 through 6. Let's see. This is Jesus speaking again to the disciples. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and he will return it soon. Think about that. The two disciples left and found a colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Think about that. I found it unusual or surprising that the people just let the disciples take the colt. Um, I mean, you imagine a donkey, and a, it's a donkey and a colt. Imagine the value of that animal in them times. And even now, there was a lot of value. And the only reason the disciples give, or were told to give, is the Lord needs it. And then the, these owners, or the bystanders, depends which um, gospel you read, allowed the disciples to take this donkey. I'll tell you what, if I was one of the disciples, I would have been so nervous sitting there. The Lord said to take it. Can you imagine? I'd have been shaken. Do you know what the penalty was in them days for stealing someone else's donkey? You can, let's turn to Exodus. Let's, let's look at the penalty for stealing a donkey. Exodus 22.4 If someone steals an ox or a donkey or a sheep and is found in the thief's possession then the thief must pay double the value of the stolen animal. That would have been a very costly thing. Uh, the punishment would have been extreme. I mean, I would have been nervous. But 
I don't know how this took place. Some people, I've read a lot of commentaries. Some think that maybe someone was sent ahead and talked to him, or Jesus previously arranged it. Or, I mean, maybe it's just divine intervention. Um, perhaps the owner of the donkey was someone Jesus had already known. We don't really know. All we do know for sure is the disciples obviously were able to get the donkeys with no problems, just by saying, the Lord needs it. Now you can see the disciples in this, and you can see they obviously had some very obedient faith, didn't they? You can also see the faith of the owner of the donkey. Obviously, if he's going to let the disciples just take these animals, he must have had some kind of faith and somehow, and believed. I thought about this, and imagine this happening today. I always like to imagine that. Imagine seeing a stranger. I mean, the only way I can think of a donkey in today's times is like a car nail. I mean, I don't know how to maybe say a tractor. I don't know. I, I think a car is a reasonable analogy for today's time. So imagine I go downstairs right now, and I see someone getting into my car. And I'm like, what are you doing? He says, oh, do you have the keys, by the way? Jesus told me to take your car... Because he needs it for some work that he's having me do, and I'll bring it back later. It's, I don't think it's unimaginable to say that, to think about that. What would you do? What would your response be? I had to think about this for a while. What would your response be? Would I need divine intervention to allow that person to take my car? Okay, so you think about that, right? We, I believe... I hope everyone's heard God's voice from them. God has spoken through many different ways, through the Bible, through another person. Um, there's different ways, right? And He's told you things in your life, right? What if He spoke to you, someone's going to need your car tomorrow? And then this happened. So you had a divine intervention, somehow. Would you willingly give up your car if you went down there? Even if, as you're, like, you're sitting there, you remember... I thought something like this might happen. Would you believe believe that divine intervention? I don't know. A complete stranger. I don't know. That's what, that's what took place there. Somehow, some way. I don't know the details. Would we listen to God if He spoke to you and said, "Let someone take your car that you've never met, you've never known, just walking up and hand him the keys." I don't know. Interesting situation that I had to really think about and question my own thoughts and process. Like I, I would hope I actually would say yes. I mean, obviously, if I had that, I would hope I'd say yes. But I don't know if I would. I don't know. I mean, I don't think any of us can truly answer it until we're, we've been put in that position to say. But I'd hope I'd say yes. So let's turn to Matthew and continue this story. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5. I told you we're jumping around a lot. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. There's a prophecy in Zechariah that Jesus is fulfilling by doing this. We're going to get a little bit later into that prophecy. But just let's look at a few things here in this. Have you ever watched someone try to ride a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden? Mm-hmm. I have. 
I've not been crazy enough to try it myself, but I've definitely witnessed a lot of people try to get on horses that have not been broken. And it's pretty obvious what happens each time. That animal is going to do whatever it can in its own power to get that person off of them. They don't want it. But you see in this story, this is Jesus is riding a colt, an unbroken animal that's never been ridden. So what we see here is just an amazing little bit of truth, and it's God's sovereignty. Is Jesus, you can see his sovereignty over the animals. This colt, this animal, knew who Jesus was. This colt allowed this to take place. This donkey, a donkey, subjected itself to Jesus, knowing who Jesus or who God was. It's interesting. All the traveling Jesus has done, three years. The last time I remember, and maybe I could be wrong, the last time I remember a donkey in the story is with Mary and Joseph. Now Jesus, all of a sudden, is going to ride this donkey. What? Why? You know why? Because Jesus' time has come. So let's turn to Mark and continue with the story. Mark chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. Jesus was in the center of this procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming of the kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. We see this laying of garments, or, uh, you know, in modern day, a jacket. And we see that laying of the garments on the donkey. We also see the laying of the garments or the jackets on the road that they were traveling. Then we see the waving and the laying down of palm branches. Now, we know that this waving of palm branches and this laying of garments is really part of Jewish custom or tradition. It's a way that you would welcome someone very important or royalty. It's a way that you would acknowledge them coming in. Someone welcoming someone great. You'd welcome a king this way, for example. Um, it was customary to take off your jacket, your outer cloak or coat, you know, in them days, and you would lay it on the red, on the ground, and then as they'd go by, you'd wave your palm branches. It was really just a way to say, I recognize who you are and I welcome you. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't really practice this today, but it was very custom in that culture to do that. Um, but think about that also in that culture, which is, you know, hard for us to get. Think about the jacket. What was that to them? I mean, today, we have a, each of us have a lot of clothes. Clothes are cheap now, I mean, relatively speaking. But this was a big deal back then. If you think about clothing back then, you maybe had one or two sets of clothing. Surely, you probably only had one outer jacket. And this would have been a very expensive piece of clothing for them. I mean, very close, possibly one of the more expensive things they would own. And it's just, it's a different time period. But try to get that in your mind. Now think about that. If you took your jacket off, and you threw it on the ground, and the donkey walks on it, so it's going to leave big old hoof prints. We know what else donkeys leave behind as they walk by. We don't have to get into them details. But you can imagine, one of the one of your most kind of more valuable things that you own, taking it and laying it on the ground, or as the disciples did, you see the disciples laid it on the donkey's back to use like kind of as a saddle. Now my daughter rides horses, and 
to put that, have you ever smelt a saddle blanket off a horse? It's disgusting. Um, so their coat now would have been, I mean, smelt like sweaty donkey. So you imagine you take this and you do this with your, your clothing. And then they're waving palm branches. And what is that? If you look in Revelation, we'll turn there, actually, and we'll see this. It's, it's a symbol, a symbol of the waving of the branches. Go to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We're just going to read the second part of verse 9. I'll read it all. I don't know. After I saw this, a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in the front of the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar. So these palm branches is very common. They waved it. It was just a sign of peace and a sign of affirmation and a sign of respect. These people were excited to see Jesus. This was, I mean, this is a big deal. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey was very purposeful. It was very powerful. This was him and the people affirming his role as king of Israel. And Jesus, by doing this, was affirming he was the son of God, fulfilling the prophecy and his promises to them and to us. So this is one of the reasons he's done this. But there's another reason, if you look at it. By Jesus entering into this way, he's also making a big statement to the religious leaders, the ones that wanted to kill him. Because now, he's forcing their hand. He is publicly telling them who he's claiming to be. So now, this will force their hand on Jesus. Where before, you know, the leaders didn't want this problem during Passover. They didn't want to deal with Jesus with all the people there. They would have really preferred, you can look in the scripture, it does talk about, they wanted to arrest him after Passover, after the people were gone. They didn't want a big scene, a big problem. But Jesus entering this way is forcing them to take action against him. The people, you know, they're praising God for their king. But we also know as they were praising and welcoming Jesus with all these things, we know unfortunately most of the people there kind of had the wrong idea of Jesus. They were hoping that he was, a, he was the one that would be their physical leader is what they were hoping. They were hoping that Jesus would take his place and they would free them from the Romans. So they still had a misconception. Most of them, I believe, just were kind of ignorant. They didn't truly understand the word of the prophets. They were blind to what Jesus' real purpose was there. So what was Jesus' real mission? What was his real purpose there? What is his real purpose today? It's the same. He is our king. He's the king of peace. Now, this is interesting. If you notice, this is one of the, the only time you really see that Jesus welcomes all the people publicly worshiping like this. It's the only time that he truly encourages the people to gather to worship him, to praise him. As he enters Jerusalem, this, I mean, this is a big, big deal. And you see that this is how Jesus has introduced himself to Jerusalem, to the people. So we see this is how, in this situation, that Jesus does want to be praised. Do you see all the examples, if we look back, of how Jesus asked to be praised there? Mainly it's through the recognition of Scripture, I see. I see as they're quoting the Old Testament. They're seeing the prophecy has been fulfilled. And so they're... You know, we should also look at this is do we look at God's word and pray through that and say, Yes, Lord, you've done that, you fulfilled that promise. 
It's a neat example. Also, we see these jackets, these outer cloaks laid down at Jesus' feet. We see the palm branches waving as in praise. So as we get into this, the question I ask is we see the people laying one of their very valuable possessions down at Jesus' feet. I have to ask the question, what has Jesus asked each one of us to lay down at his feet? So let's turn to John. John chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. The disciples, they didn't really understand still what was going on. They didn't understand that who Jesus really was. I want to turn, this is where we're going to turn back to that prophecy in Zechariah. 9-9, thank you. <laughs> so the first part of this is, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. You see, this is a prophecy that we were speaking of earlier. This one now is, as you see in this story, has actually been fulfilled by Jesus. But if you were continuing this prophecy, we're not going to read it all right now, down to verse 10, you would see this is the second part of the prophecy. It has not taken place yet. So we're going to look at that a little bit later, but just see that that is a part that is fulfilled. The problem is, is there's actually two stages of that prophecy, so you have to look at it in that context. So let's turn back to the story here in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, It is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd has come. They've come to welcome Jesus. They've come to give Jesus worship. They've come to praise him. But you see this also, there's other people asking, Who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is all this going on? What is all this commotion about? Isn't that an amazing question? It's so amazing when I can have someone ask me that. Who is Jesus? This is like the best question I think I could ever be asked. Because then I have a chance to explain to them who Jesus is. I love it when I hear that question. Now still, you can see in this passage, unfortunately, still many of the people there, they don't have the correct view of who Jesus is. Turn to Luke, chapter 19, verse 39 through 40. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The Pharisees thought the crowd's reaction to Jesus, they really thought it was basically sacrilegious or blaspheming. Uh, they're asking Jesus to rebuke his followers. They saw these followers of Jesus, these people's response to Jesus, as a challenge to their own authority. They knew that if they didn't want to revolt, they didn't want the Roman army to come down on them. Because if this happened, 
they would all lose their positions that they had. So they're asking, Jesus, tell your people to be quiet. When Jesus said, what is his response there? The stones would burst into cheers. Now why? That sounds kind of, why? Because who Jesus is. Even if the people didn't acknowledge who Jesus was, even if they didn't give him praise, Jesus is God's own creation would, including the rocks alongside the road. Jesus would be praised no matter what for who he is. His own creation would praise him. Now as we continue, know that we can see this and Jesus does, he wants Jesus, he wants us to praise him. He wants us to worship him. And I'll tell you, as we say that Jesus receives that praise, Satan does not want us to worship him. And Satan will do whatever he can to come in between us and our worship to God. So we should just know this and expect this. And then when these things do happen, just rebuke Satan. Rebuke his distractions from us worshiping the God. Because it's going to happen. Let's continue our story here in John chapter 12, verse 17 through 19. Many in the crowd have seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead. And they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. When the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Powerful. The testimony of the work that Jesus was doing was so strong, many had come to believe. Many were searching in him out. Many others also were sharing about Jesus. You can see it was Jesus shared with someone, then that person shared with someone, then another person shared with someone. That's how it should work. I, we, in church, we have this, it's called multiplication. I got a thing up here, you can look at it. This is how, if all the people in the world, if all the people in this country are going to learn about Jesus, to hear the gospel, this is how it should work. I'll just give you an example. If you had five people that you would share the gospel with, and you spent the next year with them sharing the gospel, and they would so then go out, and each one of them would share with five more people the next year, and then so on and so forth, and then it would continue to grow exponentially. And within 10 years, I mean, the whole everyone would have heard the gospel. You can see this, how quickly it grows. This is the church model that we're actually given. In years' time, in, within years' time, millions would actually hear the gospel this way. Um, Jesus, you can see that Jesus went through all his life preaching and sharing, but his focus was on the 12, wasn't it? He really, he always shared, and he shared stories, but his focus was on the 12. And I think this is our church example for all of us. We should always share the gospel. But we should be discipling a small group. And our goal is that that same group would then do the same thing, and it would continue over and over to prepare that small group that you're discipling to go out and share with another group. And I, you know, as I studied this, also, I mean, this is just, I think, a better example of how church should work. I mean, just get that select... If, say you share the gospel with five people, and three of them come to the Lord and, and take discipleship. If them three would go out and just do the same thing the next year, say, it would, just, it would grow exponentially. It would be amazing. And I think Jesus does give us that model. He started with him. Then he went to the 12, and then he goes so on and so on and further and further. 
So this is multiplication. The other, op, you know, the other one is you can see the other graph here. I got. You can see addition. You see the lines. The green line is multiplication. The the purple line is if I just keep sharing with people and none of them people share. I could share with a hundred or a thousand people. It would do nothing compared to making disciples. So this is the the method you see here, and I, I just think it's important. And also, as I studied this, I thought of another thing. You see there's people that will always oppose you sharing the gospel. You see the people in this story that are opposed to Jesus, right? Um, Look back. You see the Pharisees said to each other, There is nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Even in Jesus' time, there's those that oppose. There's going to be those that oppose us now, today, sharing the gospel. But do you see what that, the amazing, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Isn't that amazing? Think about that statement. The leaders knew there was nothing they could do to prevent the masses of people from following Jesus. This is the kind of movement or revival that we need to pray for here in this country. That the people that would oppose the gospel, that would oppose Jesus, would look on the movement that's going on and say, there's nothing we can do. Everyone is going to seek out Jesus. All these people... I would hope that there would be nothing anyone could do but embrace and join in in following Jesus. Let's pray for that kind of revival here. It would be so powerful that millions would come to know Jesus. And all of this, as I talk about millions of people, revivals and multiplication, it all begins with each one of us sharing the gospel to a few people. That's where it starts. And then after we've shared the gospel with them, for them to go out and share the gospel. So let's go to our last verse for today. Or last part of the story, not verse, but... Mark, chapter 11, verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left, because it was so late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Think about that. After this huge entry, he goes into the temple. (coughs) What do you think he saw? What did Jesus see when he went into the temple? He's been there before. What what Jesus saw, would it have pleased him? Would he have been happy with what he saw? You have to come back next week to get that answer. We're not going to get into it today. It's a cliffhanger. But I do want to ask a question as we do talk about that. What would Jesus see if he looked into our church? What would he see if he looked into your home? What would he see if he looked into your family? What would Jesus, after examining our lives, what would be his response to you? Would you welcome Jesus immediately into your house? All areas? I mean, all areas? Or do you think, would you feel that you need to clean up some things first that you would want Jesus to see? I thought about that. Because Jesus is entering this temple. What would the people there think? Oh, i got to take care of this first or that first? Or would they just welcome him in? So as we close, why is this triumphant entry so important. We know it's not a coincidence that Jesus entered Jerusalem in this way. We know that his entry was a symbol of peace. We know that in the symbolism, we know that he came here to reconcile man with God. That was his real purpose here. This was the time now for Jesus to do this. Now, as we see this entry now coming in on the donkey, there's another time that We've talked about prophecy, and we talked about there in um, Zechariah that 
that verse, there's a second part of that prophecy. And I do just want to touch on that before we close up today, because I think it's important. Because the next time that Jesus enters Jerusalem, it will be after the rapture, or after the seven-year tribulation. And that's where that second part of that prophecy comes in. If you want to see, now we know Jesus came on a donkey, right? He came to bring peace, to reconcile us with God. But I want to turn to Revelation and talk real quick just about the second part of that. Turn to Revelation 19. 19.11 Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. The rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest pure white linen, followed him on a white horse, white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And it goes on. But it's interesting as we look at that because this prophecy is two parts. And we just are studying the first part of it today when Jesus is on the docking. This, what we read in Revelation, is the second part of that prophecy, which has not taken place yet. If you were to continue reading through this, um, you could see that um, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy on Palm Sunday, but it set the motions event. This set the events in motion that would lead to our salvation. So there's many lessons. There's, it's, I find it amazing to see Jesus fulfill these prophecies. I find it amazing to see the prophecies that are still to be fulfilled. But I think it's good that we can understand that and understand that not, you know, that's a problem is the Jewish people in this time thought that second part of that prophecy, he thought he was going to fulfill that at that time. But he still has not done that. So what can we take from these passages today? What lessons? What what lessons can you take from that? I see one that I, I really think, I just, I love. And it's an assurance that Jesus will fulfill his promises to us. And also, is one thing as I looked at here is we looked at the worship that we see in this. We see all these people coming and worshiping and praising Jesus. And I thought about it. You know, not everyone in the story was praising. There was other people that were against it. But I'll tell you something about us as people, as humans. All of us worship something. Not all of us. There's always something we worship. Hopefully that's Jesus for all of us here today. But um, the choice is it's not that we will worship, but it's what we worship. There's a choice. Do we worship Jesus? Do we worship the world? What do we worship? Because we all do worship something. And you know, as I thought about that, there's only one thing worthy of worship. That is Jesus. It was Him who was our Savior. It was Jesus that entered that city that day, knowing that He was entering that as a sacrifice for our sins. He was entering that city just as one of the goats or the sheep, the perfect lamb to be sacrificed on that cross. Jesus knew he would freely give his life for each and every one of us, that he would take our sins upon him that day, that he would pay that price for our sins and death. But then we know as the week went on that he defeated sin and death. And he was he rose again and there was a resurrection. So we serve that living God. So we're going to be talking about this whole week. But it, 
as you look at that, you see that people in the story, you see the people in the story and how they worship and praise Jesus, laying down their clothes, allowing the donkey to walk on it. What do we lay down? What in our lives do we lay down for Jesus? Think about that. I want to finish with one verse. One verse as you think about that question. Romans 12, 1 and 2. <coughs> what do we need to lay down? Romans 12, 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This will, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So just as in people is laid down their jackets or clothing, we also are called to lay down our lives for Jesus, to be a living sacrifice each day that we get up and say, Lord, here I am. It's a daily thing. It's not something we do once and it's over. I have to do it each day. Say, Lord, please take me to your living sacrifice and do with me as you will today. So the worship team can head up and we'll pray here. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you as we see these four different accounts, Lord, of your triumphant entry, Lord. We see how the people worshipped you. We see how they praised you, Lord. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that as we go through our week, Lord, that we would follow their example, Lord, laying our most valuable things, our lives, down for you, Lord. That we would worship you and praise you in a manner that you would find acceptable, Lord. And Lord, as we see you as you entered that temple later in the, after that, Lord, that you walked in the temple and you looked around and you viewed what was going on. We know that we are your temple today, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would examine us and look in us, Lord. If there's be anything that would be unacceptable to you in our lives, Lord, that you would remove that from us, Lord. Lord, we are your temple, Lord. So please examine us, Lord, and reveal to us what you would have for each one of us, Lord. Lord, I praise you and I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for these lessons that we can learn. I thank you for these examples that you've given us, Lord, by leading first, Lord. Leading first for each one of us, Lord. Leading as a sacrifice into the city where you would be put on that cross. Lord, we follow you, Lord. We follow behind you, Lord. And thank you and praise your name, Lord. And just, Lord, let us be that sacrifice for you. Let us present our lives holy and blameless to you this week, Lord. Let us just live and be in your will this week. So Lord, we praise you and thank you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.